0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Berg. He's president of CornerstoneWellness.md, and he's also an internist and physiatrist. Dr. Berg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm interested in your life story. You have a really interesting origin story as far as how you got involved in Cornerstone Wellness and how you got involved in medicine to begin with. Why don't you take me back to some of your childhood experiences and how that informed you into getting into
1: medicine? Sure. When I was five years old, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Luckily, I was diagnosed early and I was treated and cured. What happened was I started developing some nodules in my neck. I don't really remember it very well. But apparently my mother kept taking me back and back to the pediatrician, kind of pulling her hair out because I was getting these big things in my neck. And he kept telling my mother that I had cat scratch disease because I used to basically lie in the dirt where we were living in Miami, Florida. And there were lots of cats around. I would fill up these big holes of dirt with water. And why exactly were you doing that? I think to stay cold, kind of like a pig <laughs> slops around in the mud. Understood. <laughs> I don't know if we had the air conditioning back then. But anyway. One doesn't
0: really need an explanation at that age for anything, <laughs> right, of right. course. But.
1: Right, exactly. You don't want to know the other things I did, which I could never explain. <laughs> Finally, thank God, she, she when she grew up in Brooklyn, it was one of their friends of the family. I think actually a guy she dated became the head of surgical oncology at Jackson Memorial in Miami. And she took me in to see him. And he's in one second, he took looked at me. He said, he's got Hodgkin's. He goes to surgery tomorrow. Mm. And turned out... Luckily, it was early, but then I had to get six weeks of radiation as a little kid. For, instead of going to the school bus, I you know, got a ride to the hospital radiation department with my mother. So I kind of felt special, like most probably sick kids feel, you Close. know, that special relationship with their, their mom or dad or both. And what happened was for years, you didn't hear this part, but for years, I had no idea what it was about hmm. until when I was about 19. I was dating a girl whose dad was a cardiologist, also at Jackson Memorial Hospital. And I told him the story about getting radiation as a kid. And I was a smart kid, but it never dawned on me that it could be something like cancer. And by the way, my dad had gotten lung cancer when I was a senior in high school, so I had that experience. Anyway, I told him the story, and kind of a nefarious guy that he was, he found my records at Jackson, and, and I was dating his daughter. And he said something like, "He's dead now, so I could say his name." His name was Joe Glassberg. Jonathan, you think just speaking with this big cigar? He's a cardiologist. He had a big fat cigar <laughs> and about a 85 inch waist. I can't remember what he said, but basically along the lines of, "You think you had cancer too?" Hmm. And I'm like, "Huh? Cancer? What?" He left the cat out of the bag. So I called my mother that night and I said, "What's this about cancer?" And she said, "And she, well, I can't talk to you. Let's come home and we'll talk." Well, I was dating the girl I was staying at her house mostly, so I called. My sister picked up the phone and I said, "Mom knows something," and she said, "About your Hodgkins?" I remember my sister had a friend that had died in Hodgkins in, in uh, junior high. I'm like, "What?" Hodgkins I had Hodgkins huh. so now it's like I got it the cat was out of the bag so my mother would over very tearfully told me that she didn't want me to worry as a little kid and to have an issue with development you know psychologically and then my dad got sick so she couldn't tell me then I'm like when were you gonna tell me that I had cancer as a five-year-old you know when you're 25 yeah right so it, this,
0: let's let alone the interesting ethical ramifications of having to find out through right. a doctor who is the father exactly. of your <laughs> girlfriend of the girlfriend the yeah. person that you're dating of course <laughs> at the time you know why not check your medical records yeah you know, why not? there was no
1: so back did, so you, know, you could do it you What's want. What's HIPAA? All right. So this gets really interesting. So what happened was I read up on Hodgkin's, and um, I was in college, I guess, first year of college, and I started rubbing my neck all the time, right? Well, it turns out I was rubbing my salivary glands, which got inflamed. And now all of a sudden, I've got nodules in my neck. And of course, most kids see pediatricians. I was seeing an oncologist all the way through my childhood years. Of course. Why would I be going to an oncologist? But I never asked any of those questions. You know, it's a denial, I guess. I go to my oncologist saying, I've got nodules in my neck. And he goes, well, I'm not so worried about these nodules, except I think you've got thyroid lumps. So then they thought I had thyroid cancer from all that radiation. All this is leading to this kind of overriding mistrust of getting information about your body from other people right. which is one reason to become a doctor right because i hear that story a lot yeah. yeah they did a thyroid scan and it was all nodules but they were they were hot they were functioning nodules the wisdom was to take out anybody who had radiation to the kid and they used to use radiation for sizing shoes for acting, all kinds of crap and they get lumpy bumpy thyroids to take the whole thyroid out not following with scans just take the whole damn thing out so i started having these dreams about you know being a mountain climber up and chasing down rabbits they took my whole thyroid out that's what I told them they were going to do. And I'd chase rabbits and, like, suck their thyroid right out of their necks and, <laughs> so, <laughs> to live, to exist, you know, to survive. So before they put me under, I asked the surgical oncologist. He was actually president of the American Surgical Oncology Society, Dr. Denbrough. I said, are they going to have to take the whole thing out? He says, well, we'll see what we can do. You know, we'll try not to, which means we will, right? I wake up in the ICU, titanic, because they damaged my parathyroids. Mm. So now I've got rip-roaring tetanic tata- I was tetanic. I was like, I had tetanus. And, you know, there's Chavatsky sign and Brzezinski sign. I was hypocalcemic because my parathyroids had been damaged, had been traumatized. So now you're a a a textbook case. Now I'm really sick. My blood pressure was in the 200s. Here I am, 19 years old, in the ICU, never having been told I'd be waking up in the ICU, possibly. And my mother's telling me everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you told me everything was okay when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. My friends would come in, who I knew were being debriefed by my mother, to tell me everything was okay. People dying in the middle of the night in the ICU, you know, just back in the... 76, 77. Clearly a running theme here of lack of information being presented to, right. to you, the patient. Mm-hmm. And I was always good in science, like most kids that end up going to medical school, and I had some good role models. My cousin ended up becoming a doctor, MD-PhD, actually. I think that at a psychological level, the mistrust of information I'm getting from others about my body, it was almost like a survival need, you know, to go into medical school and figure it out myself, <laughs> so I knew what people were talking about and protect myself. Almost paradoxical, one
0: would say. I mean, one doesn't normally put that into the spectrum of current practitioner, somebody who's going on to have a career in medicine. Usually a story like that breeds such distrust. But you took it in an interesting direction. You took it in a way that says, I need to find my own answers. I need to become a resource, a reservoir of information.
1: So what did you then go on to do? Medical school in Miami. And I didn't know what I wanted to be. So of course, I became an internist because I had a good internal medicine attending that kind of directed me in that path. And I figured, ah, you go to internal medicine, you could do anything after that, at least to learn how to take care of sick people. So I went and did that at the University of Arizona. Actually, after the first year, I was like, I hate this. I can't do this, too many sick people. People are way too sick for me. And just the waste that I saw, My classic patient of waste. We had this 90 year old black woman that had gone down at home. And of course nobody knew what to do if she got sick, right? There was no DNR, there was no advanced directives back then that people talked about. And I kept her alive for about three months in the ICU. The family had a bill of probably $400,000. For what, she was like 90 years old. But God forbid you get found down paramedics have to defibrillate you and intubate you and then you belong to the hospital until you die of a pneumonia or something and i saw it time and time again how poorly we deal with death in this country the other story was i was at the va and i had a guy who'd been in the icu forever and a va is for practice right so this one guy he was leathered down because he was combative the et tube came off of his trach and i'm sitting there trying to put it on him and he's like trying to prevent me from putting it on him by moving his head around like, don't our
0: listeners can get that sense already because the way you move against the mic, <laughs> it really does sound like you're trying to move around. Like, stay away from me, but away away I want to from... die.
1: You know, Let me go. Right. And then I had an ALS patient later on when I was doing rehab medicine that it was the same thing. It was like his wife wanted to keep him alive, and they were going to intubate him with ALS. I just couldn't get the rationale behind that. It didn't make any sense to me. I mean, you have a dog that's sick, isn't going to do well. You can take him to the vet and have him put down peacefully. So in my mind, we were treating our animals, our pets, better than we're treating our humans Mm -hmm. just because of our own inability and our sort of Judeo-Christian way of not being able to deal with death righteously, like they would say in a Hindu environment, you know, in India or something, or Buddhist or Eastern, whereas death is just part of life. So I went ahead and did internal medicine the full three years because I was already, you know, into it. And the hardest part was already over my internship year. But I went to a chronic pain lecture by a physiatrist, a rehab doc in town, and just kind of got really interested. in wow, that really takes it all into account, the whole chronic pain experience in terms of suffering and, you know, the pharmacology of it. It just kind of incorporated everything I'd learned. So I decided to do PM&R. So I went up to Seattle, University of Washington, did my PM&R, which is that was like the best program in the country. And I really wanted to learn from the giants. The physical there. medicine and rehabilitation. Yep. Okay. And did three years of that. You learn how to take care of patients with spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, that kind of stuff. But you also learn a lot of musculoskeletal medicine, which is really what I was attracted to. Did PM&R. Like most physiatrists, I did some inpatient rehab and then some musculoskeletal medicine. Shoulders, necks, non-operative orthopedics, basically. And some interventional pain procedures, spinal injections, that kind of stuff. The biggest problem I had there was a lot of it's litigated. So you get into these situations where you want to sort of protect your patients from the system. By doing that, you enable your patients in a way. Because, you know, they're either out of work on workers' comp or we're in car accidents And you're sort of part of that secondary gain situation. Not that people are necessarily faking consciously, but there's a lot of reinforcement schedules set up with those kinds of patients. And then you start kind of worrying, well, what is he really taking these pain meds or is he selling them or is he getting addicted? And you're kind of taught to cure the problem. But if the problem is opiates and there's so many potential problems with opiates, both medically and and in terms of creating addicts, quite frankly that you start feeling bad and you're trying to follow that prima, no, no, sorry law, you know, to first do no harm, but you might be doing harm. So do I really want to be in a situation where I'm not able to sleep at night and have sweaty palms because I'm afraid that if I get sick and I'm out of work for a week, then half my patient's going to go into withdrawal.
0: Again, we come to that running story. You had this childhood or upbringing of information that wasn't made to your disposal. And now you're in a position of educational responsibility, but you're having to be wary of the information that you dispense because there are litigatory potentialities. There are some things that you're getting defensive about or like most practitioners listening, they're going to be thinking, I have to be kind of careful about how I present certain information, Mm. what I prescribe. And you're also in a position where you're prescribing pain medications and other things, and you're not sure if the information coming to you from the patients is entirely legitimate.
1: Because it's a medical legal, both from the standpoint of workers' comp and personal injury, and their secondary agendas, shall we say, it's one of the few areas in medicine where, other than maybe the ER, where you have to take everything the patient says kind of put on your lie detector. I mean, I literally could hear, because I learned gait analysis, could, could hear how patients walking in the waiting room coming into my office and how their gait changes as they come into the exam room. So it's almost like the patient becomes an adversary. And that's no fun, especially if you're, like, really honest with yourself. Like, what is this patient really after? You know, everybody wants to love their patients. They want their patients to love them. But in an adversarial situation, and I was a patient advocate. I mean, I was the enemy of the workers' comp system, the enemy of the defense bar in terms of the personal injury. The trial lawyers temptations to me. I was kind of getting disenfranchised by the whole retroactive aspect of western medicine how we're always treating the disease but not really treating the patient it's just easier to treat the disease than it is to treat a patient quite frankly if you're honest with yourself i read an article about the use of omega-3s in radiculopathy in the journal of neurologic surgery and i was like what what's an omega-3 you know i knew nothing about this stuff so i started reading up on it and started treating patients with omega-3s including a spinal cord patient t9 para who had severe dysesthesias, chronic pain in her zone of injury, autonomic dysreflexia, really bad. And I put her on high dose omega-3s and lo and behold, within a week, she was like cured of her pain. And I was just like, got smacked, I think the word is. So I used we'll use that term. I <laughs> <laughs> started using it more and more. Like a Crohn's disease patient, I put on high dose omega-3s. She was eating like oatmeal and rice and couldn't eat anything else. She was about to have a total colectomy. And within a couple of weeks, she was eating everything and didn't need to have a colectomy. So I just got kind of angry that I hadn't been taught about this stuff in medical school, quite frankly. Nobody talked to me about this stuff. I was asked to give a talk at a wellness conference on omega-3s and neurologic and psychiatric dysfunction because they were using it for bipolar, they've used it for a lot of neurologic and psychiatric issues, and I met somebody there who's now my vice president co-founder of this company we have, who was speaking about a technique called bioelectrical impedance where we measure body fat, lean body mass with electrical resistance meters and stuff. We started talking to each other. She was already setting up doctors to do fat loss We joined forces and created this company, Cornerstone Wellness, where we set up positions around the country. We've got about 1,400 positions around the country doing the program where they follow the patient's body fat, lean body mass, and basically set their meal plans based on their metabolic rate. So it's very customized, taking into account that we know for a fact that lifestyle modification really is the only true treatment for the obesity epidemic. That's the only thing that works long term. That's a given. But yeah, what we see out there is short-term approaches, either, you know, the use of pharmacologic agents like phentermine, and anorectic agents, or you know, these crazy HCG fads, where people are losing, you know, twenty pounds for that cruise coming up or for that wedding coming up, but nobody's treating it as a medical problem that needs long-term treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well again, it sounds like treating the disease as you put it yeah, earlier. Exactly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm joined with Dr. Jonathan Berg, he's president of Cornerstone Wellness.md. And he's also an internist and physiatrist. And we're talking about a career that has skirmished, shall we put it, the outlines of disease prevention to a more progressive model of preventative medicine today. So let's get back to your work with Cornerstone Wellness. We have the setup here in which you started to see in your own practice A rationale for moving more towards preventative medicine and really treating the patient. Tell us about how that led to your current employment or your current founding of Cornerstone Wellness.
1: My purpose and my greatest desire was to help the patient. The tools that I had were obviously causing some degree of negativity be it, for example, steroids. You know, obviously steroids are great for inflammation, and they help the patient with pain. But in the long run, they're weakening tendons, they're causing less collagen cross-linking, they cause obesity, decrease you know, resistance. Like, everything you do in medicine almost always has a negative aspect using Western pharmacotherapeutics.
0: Well, it's the old adage, you know, that every medicine is a toxin. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well. No question. But in nutritional medicine, it's almost impossible to cause any negatives.
0: Well, it depends you know? on how we define nutrition, I imagine. <laughs> I would imagine certain things that go into my mouth that I well, know I shouldn't be.
1: Nutritional medicine or (laughs) nutritional therapeutics. So we've created the first ever really completely comprehensive turnkey program. You know, physicians don't have time to do weight loss other than just handing out fentanyl scripts. They just don't. And economically, they're under duress. You know, it just gets worse every year. So this provides kind of a passive profit center for the doctor. But it's not like a passive profit center that's kind of like not really medicine. This is what he or she should be doing anyway, which is prevention. But nobody knows how to get paid for nutritional counseling. So we train the medical assistants in the office how to do the whole program. And because it's so computer and Internet driven and it's so cutting edge and evidence based, the medical assistants have no problem doing. We can provide complete support, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 to all of the offices that we have so that nobody's ever, you know, like with weird questions like, well, my patient's got a creatinine of, you know. 4.2, 4.2, how much protein can I give them, that kind of stuff. I never talk to the patients directly. I always go through the physician and help the physicians with adding of different hormones or checking in a reverse T3 levels and little pearls that I've learned over the years. The nice thing about weight loss medicine, which doesn't sound like fun to a lot of people, treating people that are you know super obese, but our average patient's like 30, 35, 40 pounds overweight. It's not like a, a hardcore 800 calorie day obesity clinic. I mean, most of our patients are on 12 1,300 calories a day because anything less than that, people are basically hibernating and they're, they're going to lose weight quickly because they're diuresing and they're starving. But long-term, you know, it's a long-term problem. So typically a long-term solution is the answer, not a short-term answer. Right. Starvation never sounds like a long-term solution. Yeah. And there's so much fad and, you know, people hear so much nonsense. And I think the physician's responsibility is to be as up on the most cutting edge stuff and present that to the patient and present them with the truth. And it can be financially remunerative, much more so than say just being a fentanyl mill, which we see all over, particularly the deep south. There's these offices that are handing out two, three hundred prescriptions, or, or dispensing, I should say. So that they're actually buying up big bottles of fentanyl and repackaging them, you know, two weeks at a time and basically overcharging the patient for the fentanyl, just like like a drug dealer would do, quite frankly, in my opinion. But you have another staff member doing it, so you're not taking time from your schedule of patients to see a weight loss patient. You're overseeing somebody else doing it. And because it's so tried and true and tested over 1,400 physicians times, God knows how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients, and it's got to be the tens of thousands by now, it works well. So we have meal replacements have been shown to be the most effective way, you know, based on 25 articles in the world's literature, including a meta-analysis. It works better than any usual care diets because it provides the protein that people need to maintain lean body mass, which is what protects them. The bottom line is fat loss, not weight loss, and maintenance of lean body mass because that's what determines your metabolic rate the amount of muscle you have on your frame. And if you drop your BMR, particularly women, they're never going to get that muscle back, which means their BMR is going to be lower, which means they're always going to burn less calories down the road. So you're actually, if you do a rapid weight loss, people are losing muscle mass, dropping their BMR, and you're actually sabotaging them. They're going to leave your care worse off than if you hadn't done anything at all. Mm -hmm. Again, looking for, you know, how can we really hurt patients, as well as how can we help them. So the worst thing you can do for your patients is put, put them on a program where they're losing as much weight as they want to lose as quickly as they want to lose it, to go on the cruise, to go on the, you know, for the wedding, whatever. It's got to be a medical decision and a long-term change. In this country, people go on diets. What we don't do, which is what we should do in this country, is change our diet. Two different things.
0: Well, I'm reminded of a classic Onion article title that said, I lost 50 pounds in two days and totally died, <laughs> you know, as a, as a form of like euphoric statement. But there's some truth that a lot of people come in, I'm sure to you or to other practitioners, and they say, I want to lose a lot of weight right off the top. I want to lose several pounds every week. And it sounds like from your perspective, you say, you know, maybe a pound, a pound and a half, two pounds per week is actually what, what the target is, because that's better oh.
1: What we do is we get, because we have the tools that we create at USC, the device that measures very, very accurately within about half a percent of DEXA, their lean body mass or body fat, we don't even talk about pounds of weight. We say, you're going to lose, when we can predict, the computer actually spits out a number and says, if you do this program, as we set it up with this percentage of macronutrients, certain percentages of protein, carbs, certain number of calories, you will lose 1.7 pounds of fat per week. Now, We don't want you to lose more than that because if you lose more than that, that extra weight is coming from muscle. Mm -hmm. But we only want you to lose fat. Our very, very first patient is a great example. Our very first patient was the office manager for a Mormon family, big family practice, literally like 15 kids, all of whom worked in the family practice. So it truly was a family practice. The whole family worked there. She tried everything to lose. She went on our program with our shakes and in a month came back in tears because she would only lost two pounds. You know, she'd been on the, the hamster wheels, you know, hours a day. And we measured her and she was actually had lost eight pounds of fat gained six pounds of muscle so she was net minus two pounds but in reality had lost eight pounds she couldn't figure out why she dropped like a dress size and a half with that doctors need to remember that it's not the weight that makes people sick it's the fat cells that are making people sick via the inflammatory cytokines that they release and so forth driving up the insulin levels and all that so it's it's a matter of fat loss not weight loss weight only affects your dependent joints that's the issue
0: well, Dr. Jonathan Berg, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. Thank I think we've learned a lot uh, and covered the spectrum. I've really enjoyed talking about your life and career story. And it's been informative talking about your current passion and pursuit. And clearly, you're very, very passionate about what you're doing right now. And I wish you all the best.
1: Thank it. you very much. Appreciate it, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: ReachMD is online, on air, and on demand. Remember that you can always download the podcasts on ReachMD.com. And thanks again for listening.